tall, transcendent visionary uh, seeks spiritual equal. Emails open. News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers. I'm the city. Harry Siegel is me here with Katie Honan. Hi, Harry. And Professor Christina Greer. Good mornings. Hi, Harry. Hi, Katie. Hey. And it hasn't been such a jam-packed week in New York City. It's actually been a little bit of a holiday weekend week with the 4th of July. So we've got a bunch to discuss, some things from this week, some things from last. But we have to start with a New York Times exclusive directly from the sources as former Mayor Bill de Blasio, him who has been being fined, fighting a fine, hundreds of thousands of dollars for the conflict of interest board, who owes hundreds of thousands of dollars more to his attorneys. And uh, his wife, uh, Sherlane McRae, announced in a Times profile that they're separating. And then we can we can get to other stories from there. But but what do, what do we, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it is sort of a remarkable further return to the public eye from someone who said he's not running for office again. That chapter of his life is done. And uh, it's quite a thing to deliver to the Times, which did present this pretty much as a straight news story with lots and lots of quotes from them uh, explaining how difficult it was to be together, particularly in the course of a presidential run and why they are separating now at 62 and 68. Chrissy, what do you make all this? Well, to be fair, it's very difficult to be in the public eye. You know, I think we all know marriage is hard enough, but, you know, speaking to friends who are elected officials in various cities, it's hard. You know, there's a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of pressure. We know that the former first lady has talked openly about some of her struggles with depression and, you know, obviously having a detail and people critiquing you every single day probably exacerbates that and just puts a lot of pressure on relationships. Let's I'm all for separating or divorcing if the, if you feel like you've come to the end of the road or you just need a beat, um, just because life is short, as we saw during COVID. Um, I just really hope that they don't become the Will and Jada of New York City. I cannot take a play-by-play of their entire relationship. I'm thoroughly disinterested. I wish them the best. We all know couples go through things. Sometimes couples go through separations and they get back together. God bless. And then sometimes you realize, you know what? The kids are out of the house. You know, lots of parents divorce once, you know, kids are a little bit older and circumstances change. So and the whatever, presidential run is done, right? And the presidential run is done. And we know that Bill de Blasio is having his own existential crisis because he's not an elected official for the first time in several decades. Whatever it is, I wish them well. But please, I beg, do not take the nine million of us along with your relationship journey. I am thoroughly disinterested. The New York Times, you've given us the story. We don't need to sort of speculate. That's great. But like they can be over there in Park Slope dating, not dating, whatever they feel like doing, consciously uncoupling. I don't know what it's called. But I don't need to know everything about Bill de Blasio's dating life. And I really hope that the press corps that finds this story interesting will spare us the Will and Jada-esque details. <clears throat> yes. I wish them well, but do not tell. I will say, look, there were the newsworthy things in there. I mean, also keep in mind, this is the New York Times. This is a publication that published excerpts of their wedding video back in 2013. Um, 
and one time like published video or audio of Shirlane singing a lullaby. Again, very to me, I'm not a news director, but very puzzling thing. The newsworthy parts in there were, yeah, that the, one of the stressors, they cited COVID, they cited other things. And look, it's hard to be in a relationship. I understand that, especially in the public eye. But the fact that it was his presidential run, something that 9 million people in the city agreed upon, along with Sherlane, that he should not have done, that has now caused him lots and lots of issues. The fact that she did not, she 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 was sort of openly didn't really seem into it. And then now in the story, she said that was a stressor. Like, and I don't blame her. You're married to this guy. He's been mayor for two terms. He's public advocate, city council, blah, blah, blah. He's going on Good Morning America announces run for president. Everyone in Times Square, this is a man who's presidential. Sorry, they're drilling behind me. This is a man whose presidential run brought together the PBA and Black Lives Matter activists yeah. in Times Square in unity against Bill de Blasio. And he still went along with it. That's transcendent. And that's transcendent. And now they're getting hit with like record breaking fines from conflict of interest mm-hmm. board. He has to pay back the mayoral detail uh, that he took on the thing again. And she's probably reading these stories like, what did I fucking say? Right. He was an embarrassment. Listen? It was an embarrassment. And I don't blame her for being like, I got to get out of here. And then you have COVID on top of that. Like, and obviously. And the congressional rep. Yeah, you have the documentation of, you know, she, sexuality is your, you know, it's fluid, but she wrote in the 70s that she was a lesbian. Maybe she wants to date, who knows? My, I, I'm sure the New York Post already knows, and that's why the story in the New York Times came out. Word. But I think it's also, Katie, the way you lay out the presidential run, it's a larger conversation about Bill de Blasio just not listening. Yeah. And I can definitely imagine with these fines, and they're not insignificant, by the way. Yeah. But like that coming up and the financial stress, I mean, any anyone who's been in a couple who's shared finances knows that financial stress is real and it can lead to all different types of conversations that come up and sort of erode the foundation. So that coming up now could really just exacerbate and highlight this larger conversation of like, do you listen to anyone but yourself? Do you really care about anyone else's thoughts or needs but yourself? And so if you turn to someone, as Bill de Blasio says, it's like, we're not lovey-dovey anymore. It's like, okay, but are we not lovey-dovey because you can only hear the thoughts in your own head and you don't take the advice, the sage wisdom of people who clearly care about you. So I could see where that could be, you know, as you look down the barrel of all these bills, they represent sort of your husband not listening to you consistently about something really important. And now, like, he's, listen. You know, I said he drinks Lucky Juice as a tall white man. So he's not looking at prison time because of this financial impropriety, but he's definitely looking at a financial strain on the family. And just one more point. I think that line is so perfect. Again, I'm not a therapist or a relationship expert, but even saying what opened up the conversation was you're not lovey-dovey anymore. Right. It was his interpretation of their relationship Child, and what he felt he wasn't getting it. anymore. Meanwhile, maybe he should have reflected why has my wife, the love of my life's behavior changed? Right. What am I doing differently? What can I do to improve things? Except it was me, 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 you, 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 you. Like it was her defect. If that was me, I would have said, oh, I'm not lovey-dovey anymore. Right. You had us going to Iowa. What was that about? Right. Anyway. <laughs> and then, hey, not. don't forget, after the failed presidential, we're going to run for Congress so you can possibly be in D.C. And no, don't governor that before one. that. 
Don't forget, governor. Oh, I did forget. I did forget. <laughs> so I think that this is this is a larger, you know, first of all, I'm just imagining someone sitting across from Bill de Blasio where he's like, I was the 109th mayor of New York City. I'm going to sit here and talk to you over this Branzino while it gets cold because I've got everything interesting to say. And it's like, you know, Bill de Blasio, this is what I said a few weeks ago on the podcast. Take a beat. Sit down for a second. Think about why it is that New York has told you consistently certain things about yourself. And I think that his need, desire, and uh, I don't know, Achilles heel, I don't know. His his need to be in front of us and be some sort of elected, unelected in the public eye is something that I think he needs to really reevaluate and evaluate, actually. Um, and, and Harry, oh, just, oh, sorry. I just gonna, for our listeners, I wouldn't see him because I don't have my my filters that way. But if anyone sees Bill de Blasio on Bumble, Hinge, Tinder, send us the screenshots. I want to know what this man's dating profile is going to look like. I'm just a little curious. What does it say? 109th mayor. Not a great listener, but I'm very tall. I um, owe New York City half a million dollars. <laughs> I owe my lawyers a million dollars. Slightly financial troubles. Um. <laughs> no, no, just really the, into PDA, <laughs> really, really into PDA. Um, your sexuality might not matter because <laughs> I mean, go ahead. Sorry, Harry. Sorry, Harry's been trying to jump in. We're just <laughs> Harry knows good and well he's going to tiptoe into this conversation because Harry, guess what? We have women listening to this podcast, we have met and dealt with and dated Bill de Blasio's, and it's just like. This is, he's got a character flaw. And the character flaw is that he thinks that he's great with very little listening skills. Um, and he's now in the phase of the character flaw, which is the oversharing phase. And I just beg that he does not drag us down the streets of New York while we go on the adventures of Bill de Blasio dating and he and Charlene separating. So with that, we're going to end this episode of red, open parentheses, ex-mayor, close parentheses, table talk. And be- <laughs> if we don't get away from Will and Jada, please, please. And then we're going to transition over. Speaking of questionable decisions in many different directions and uh, the New York Times, what's up with that? Something that happened right after we recorded last week that got very understandably a lot of pickup was uh, Mayor, President Mayor Eric Adams, very much in the uh, public eye, not Freudian, very much in the public eye and under that sort of intense scrutiny, uh, was at a uh, community forum, quote unquote, I'll say, last Wednesday. Um, he hasn't really done open town halls. He's tended to stack rooms and so on where this woman got up, was not part of the, uh, you know, the, the agreed to community people where each table got one question and started monologuing the mayor very aggressively about how he was in the pocket of big real estate. The rent increases he had were totally unacceptable and so on. And Adams got mad and he said, uh, don't point at me. Don't be disrespectful to me. I'm the mayor of the city. Treat me with the respect I, I deserve to be treated. And then he said, don't stand in front of me like you're treating someone that's on the plantation that you own. So 
bunch of outlets. I think the New York Times was one of the first figured out and immediately noted that, that this woman's family had fled the Holocaust. Their headline is Mayor compares housing activists to family fled Holocaust to plantation owner. She's also a lifelong New Yorker. Um, and, and there's sort of two separate things to untangle here. Uh, the first being, was, was this a, the right and appropriate way to cover what Adam said? And the second being, what is Adam's thinking? Uh, you know, you know, going off that way in in a public forum, he did uh, some media appearances the next day, his usual like three to five minute ones where he doesn't really take follow up questions. And he said he stood by those comments that he was a civil servant and he wasn't going to let civil servants be disrespected and so on. Uh, Chrissy, we, we're talking a little offline. Uh, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on this. And, and then Katie, please. OK, so I'm going to preface this with this, this little anecdote. When I was in grad school. And the internet was just a thing. I didn't think to email myself these articles because the internet was new. So I kept them on my laptop. And sadly, that was like 14 laptops ago. But I used to have a file on my laptop called The New York Times is a Racist Gossip Rag. Full disclosure. And I would just take articles every week and put them in there that I thought the framing of The New York Times was just a racist gossip rag. So I did that for a few years, and then, of course, the laptop died, and those articles went away. Now, that's not to say that I don't have a lot of respect for a lot of the journalists who work at the New York Times. Shout out to Jeff Bezos, especially. But I think sometimes the New York Times and their framing is so inappropriate and so off-base and so out of touch, it makes me irate. This is one of those times. So, a few things. One. The greatest disservice Barack Obama ever did as an executive was let white people talk to him all types of ways and not say anything. Because now we have Black executives who are just like, I'm sorry, what are you doing? It goes to a larger, deeper issue where Black people get real sensitive when white people in subordinate positions talk to them all types of crazy. I'd put that in that category. Now, we can get to Eric Adams in a second about always. <laughs> he takes it one step too far. And I'm like, ah, oh, Eric Adams. But I will say this. I don't think the framing from the New York Times made any sense. Why are we talking about her? He didn't know she was a Holocaust survivor when she was standing up there pointing at him. Right? She, she wasn't. It's a, she said in an interview that her Jewish family had fled Europe during the Holocaust. Okay, so, so what's that I got to do with... I believe she was raised in New York. What's that got to do with the conversation? So, right. descendant of Native American genocide has questions about composting, Right. Descendant of U.S. chattel slavery has questions about the subway. Is this the framing that we're going to start having? Like, what does that have to do with any of the conversation? What does that have to do with her raising her voice and pointing at him? Which is, again, pointing to a grown ass Black man. I can see where he gets sensitive. Now, do we need to have the plantation conversation? <laughs> to me, that's a little, little much. But then again, I'm not an executive who consistently gets disrespected as mayor of New York City. I am a Black academic who gets disrespected as associate chair for a department. So yeah, I get it. Like when I'm sitting here looking at this woman pointing and yelling, I'm like, uh, yeah, part of it is the job. You're the mayor. You're supposed to take it. But this, this goes back to just sort of how white people talk to black people, especially in positions of power. So yeah, she probably would have done it to de Blasio, I guess, but that's not the conversation we're having. We're having the conversation. She did it to Eric Adams. And I think she did, Eric by Adams, the way, there was a press clip about yeah, her interrupting yeah, like, de Blasio at a this forum. Is what she does. And, and, yeah. So it's like, 
okay, fine, that's what you do. But I think Eric Adams is like, but you may have done it to the 109th mayor. You're damn sure not going to do it to the 110th. And, you know, I got a lot of texts about it. And a lot of folks were just like, he's crazy. Can you believe, you know, he went off on her about plantations? And I was like, yeah, because he's tired of it. I could see it. I could see him being exhausted by it. Now, would I do that if I were mayor? I don't know if I'd bring in the plantation piece, but I do think that there is a there is a larger conversation that Eric Adams is having with New Yorkers and de facto the United States because he's not Hakeem and Corey and Barack and Adrian Fenty and like all these, I call them the light-skinned, light-eyed crew, but like all these Black electeds who have been in either executive or high-level leadership positions who have a certain level of politics of respectability that white voters are accustomed to. That's not Eric Adams. He's like, first of all, y'all didn't vote for me to get me here. So like, I owe you nothing. Um, so on the one hand, is he, is his style my style? No. On the other hand, do I fundamentally understand why he would say something like that? Yes. Do I tacitly endorse it? Yeah, actually. Because I think that we need to have a conversation. First of all, most white people don't have a Black friend. And they damn sure don't have a Black person who is their superior or in a position of power over them. That is just, that's the way this country has been structured. Most white people have never had a Black teacher or professor. We get it. But this is sort of this woman who's like yelling and pointing. And he's like, let me remind you and everybody else that I'm the mayor of this city. So I'm like, I'm here for it. Like, if it's going to start a conversation that takes us away from, you know, Jesus told me to be here, then I'm fine. I got I got one quick uh, question about that. And incidentally, in the speech where, or not so incidentally, where he said, uh, uh, God uh, spoke to my heart and told me I would be mayor on January 1st, 2022. And I was telling everyone in New York City about it. And they all said I was crazy. Uh, interestingly, not one person he told about this vision prior to being elected mayor, actually showed up. But in that speech, uh, Adams, who's compared himself to, uh, you know, uh, Kuta Kinta from Roots, you know, he said here, uh, I, I, I know you think you can whip me and make me go from saying, or he said earlier, um, from Kuta Kinte to Toby, but damn it, Kuta Kinte is all I know. Uh, he said in this Father's Day speech where he said God told him he'd be mayor, but uh, he compared himself to Denzel's character, Denzel Washington's character, in glory, um, who goes off as Adams describes it to uh, I haven't seen glory in 15 years now, so in the trust, Ali brings it, um, to uh, uh, to see his girl before this battle. You know, he's, he's a Union soldier and he comes back and he gets punished for being AWOL, and uh, they're, they're going to uh, they're gonna whip him and they take off his shirt and uh, look at his back and it's all scarred. And Denzel's character says, what can you do to me? I've already got the scars. And then uh, Eric Adams says, you know, the press can write what they want. Uh, the pundits can say what they want. What can they do to me? I've already got the scars. And, and my question for you, Chrissy, is as you're talking about how and why this is, this is really understandable and how he's a different sort of black Marin for New York, a second one. But he's also talked a lot about how, or a couple of times now, about how, and, and Al Sharpton has as well, they're like, people don't want a black mayor to get reelected. And I'm just curious if you think that, and look, he gets elected if, if, if white folks were deciding this election, Catherine Garcia's mayor. Like, like the, the, the polling is very clear. But is this 
politically and otherwise wise of Eric Adams to say publicly and as frequently as he can, is is this purposeful? Is this undisciplined? I, I, I just like to know how you see this. Yeah, I mean, I think Eric Adams winning shocked and disappointed a lot of people who are used to getting their way. And if you remember, Harry, right after he was elected, there was this scramble of people who are used to getting what they want, because not only did they not know Eric Adams, they didn't know anyone who knew Eric Adams. So it's like, well, where's our power, right? So like, we can't nominate our judges that we want. We can't sort of put our people in to sort of give us what we want. We can't make a phone call and make certain things go away. Like, that's just how power works in the city. So these like, you know, those five neighborhoods in Brooklyn where all the journalists live together, Upper West mm-hmm. Side, you know, none of those people. Not all the journalists. Not all the, thank ahead. you. You know, Katie, that's, <laughs> this is why I love me some Katie Honig. Um, yeah. I really do. But like, let's be Eric clear. Eric Adams said in that same Father's Day speech, just to exactly the point you're making, but he, he's brought people who are his people, who are the people God wants in power right now, who are not people who the people who have had power are used to or are comfortable with in right. that same Father's Day speech. And I think, honestly, like, I mean, if Eric Adams would ever come on this podcast, I think that's why he likes Katie and doesn't like you. I mean, part of it, like, I think he does actually see Katie as, like, not part of this, like, five neighborhood journalist crew and the Upper West Side. Well, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see about that. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) Maybe he can come on and let us know. But I, you know, in all seriousness, I think there is a conversation that can be had about Black electeds being one-termers. I mean, we, we heard McConnell and friends say that about Barack Obama explicitly. We've seen it, you know, obviously with the data with David Dinkins and, you know, Rudy Giuliani just making sure he did everything in his power for that to happen. I mean, listen, I'd much rather you focus on the conversation of what are you doing for me so that you earn a second term as opposed to scaring people into the paranoia of they don't want me to have it. It's like, well, hey, focus on goods and services and then it'll automatically happen because people will say that you've actually done your job. So like, I don't, we don't need to keep bringing it up. I'd much rather you bring up what you're doing, the organization of your team, making sure money's allocated where it needs to be as opposed to they don't want me to have a second term. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of black people know, like, yeah, sure. They don't want you to have a second term. We know that. So that being said, let's focus on this housing. Let's focus on these jobs. Let's focus on working with the governor. Let's focus on getting this budget passed with city council. It's a given that white people don't want you to have a second term. Okay. Yes. We understand how race works. We understand how this country works. We definitely understand how the city works. Moving forward, do your job, and then we can figure it out. That's that's where I'm I'm leaning. Katie, you want to jump in here? I know, look, the mayor has also directed this criticism at the uh, press corps and said it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't represent the city. Um, and he's pushed back and his people have on a whole number of stories from different journalists saying, do you really want to write this story about the uh, city's second black mayor, especially early on before before he's even had a chance to this, that, the other. And, and both both tactically and practically, I, I, I struggle with w- whether this is a. Uh, in his interests and in the uh, city's interests. Um, and it's obviously a, a vast contrast with with the approach that David Dinkins took, who did not win a second term, having been, you know, utterly uh, gentlemanly and detached from a lot of these sorts of politics, even as uh, uh, Giuliani drove into them. And this made a very tiny difference in, in who voted which way in 89 and 93, but it, made, it was part of what maybe made it enough. 
it's complicated. We are a predominantly white press corps. I think we, for the most part, and I'm biased here because I'm I'm part of it, I think we cover the mayor as fairly as we can. And I, I think we're all trying to cover the way he's running the city and the issues in the city. A lot of these issues are out of his control, right? The thousands of asylum seekers that's out of his control. The city is trying, I will say, to to, to improve things and 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 do what they can um when it comes to them. But yeah, I, I just think, okay, I can't, I'm a reporter. I can't change my race. I think we do need to have more diverse reporters. We just need to have people who have obviously ethnic and, and racial diversity, but then also diversity of experiences. And even, yeah, Christy, like where they live and what they're doing. And, you know, I think some of the problem too, with, with a lot of jobs, people come to New York City for a job. They meet, the, the advice I give younger journalists is like, make friends outside of journalism, because obviously you want your journalist friends, but, you know, make some friends and I come at it from my own perspective because I'm from here. So I have my ragtag bunch of friends from my life in New York City, and they're not all journalists, and they have different perspectives, and they have different ways that they view the city. They Some of them, a lot of them work for the city, so they have that perspective as well. But yeah, I, I think the mayor also picks and chooses when he wants to get mad at a racist press corps, because here's something, he goes quite frequently on Sid Rosenberg's radio show. And when you listen to Sid Rosenberg's radio show, he quite frequently says very racist things. This is a man who told... Mayor Adams, you are Donald Trump to me. But then they're also very good friends and all that. So if you look into the history. Shout out to Don Imus. Exactly. Yeah. If you look into the history of Sid Rosenberg and who he hangs out with and 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 the things that he has said, Sid Rosenberg years ago, I mean, mm -hmm. this is of course 20 years ago, but people are who they are, like saying the Williams sisters are too manly and, and they look like men. You know, this is stuff that was controversial, but this is who the mayor chooses quite frequently to go on the radio with. So again, you can say that we're all racist white reporters and all the white reporters love eating Crown Heights or wherever. They don't understand him. But does Sid Rosenberg understand you? Is that who understands you? A guy who lives in Bell Harbor, Queens, right? And like says wild stuff all the time when you're on the radio, and when you're not on the radio. So again, that's my interpretation. So Katie, I I agree. I mean, I, I wish, A, I wish the mayor would talk to a much more diverse group of people. I mean, not just our podcast, but, you know, he doesn't really talk to Brian Lair and Errol Lewis as much as I would like or hope. And they have such diverse audiences. Um, I think, I do think that we have a problem with the press corps, though. I mean, knowing lots of people, I think people try hard and they do great, but there are a lot of people who fundamentally don't understand New York race or class. And I think they're, learning on the job, which is fine. A lot of us do it. But there's a, because there's this long history in New York, everything connects to something else. So like, if you don't fully understand David Dinkins, you can't understand Eric Adams. If you don't understand Dinkins to Giuliani, like this Eric Adams moment and who would vote for Eric Adams, it's like Giuliani people would vote for Eric Adams? Yes. Bloomberg people would vote for Eric Adams? Yes. Um, de Blasio people secretly like some of the policies of Eric Adams? Yes. So I think having spoken to a lot of journalists over time, my frustration is some of it's youth where they just have to learn some stuff. But a lot of it is not fully understanding race. Like having a friend of color here or there doesn't help you understand some of the like real deep conversations that, that we're having in this moment that Eric Adams is like excavating. And essentially it's like, keep up. Um, and so that to me is 
frustrating and I see his frustrating frustration. I think sometimes he hides behind that very real notion when he doesn't want to answer some serious questions about something he is or is not doing. But I do think that because we keep losing these local newspapers um, that are sort of more borough focused because the ethnic press is on life support in a lot of ways, because the larger state of journalism is what it is. We oftentimes are relying on, you know, the big papers and it's like, you know, we need more places like the city and some of these other entities that are popping up. I'm blanking on the new one. That seems pretty interesting. Um, but like we can't let we can't let the New York Times be the story of record because if you go to their metro section, it's like their idea of New York is the most warped, inappropriate, unrealistic, insulting version of New York City. There's two separate things I think to untangle here. There, there's a uh, an elite press corps that does not entirely reflect the city, where the issue is not actually to the same extent experience. We have people who've had a job or two in journalism. Have, generally been around for a bit, although the Times does do a thing where they just parachute people in from other places and beats. And it's like, congratulations, you know, you're the New York person now or one of them. And then there's a broader press corps where you have a lot of much younger people where I think all those reporters, some of whom are really brilliant folks with a handful of exceptions, but they they, they lack some of the historical perspective that Chrissy is talking about that Eric Adams can bring to the table um, and the ability to respond to that and to know how to assimilate it. And frankly, I think that's true for uh, reporters of color, for, for a lot of young uh, black reporters, as, as it is for white ones. It's just there's so much happening here and everything in New York is echoing other things. And if you come in with none of that knowledge, none of that slipstream and you're just jumping in, it's hard to do. And you can be overwhelmed and outpaced by events. And as there are fewer and fewer reporters to go around and um and cover them um you know i, I think it's a, a big structural issue for the city right now um and for, for journalists ability to seem like 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 fair observers or referees or however you want to to formulate that who can call balls and strikes and uh without passing judgment just say here are the things that happened here are the the other things they relate to here's the big picture you need to understand in a way that isn't distorted as you're saying, the, the, the Times is, and I, 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 as a journalist, I want to be cautious about that, but but I, I think it's pretty obvious that, that, that there is a uh, Manhattan centricity and a broken centricity now um, to their coverage, um, and, and that they have like significant blind spots, and that, that their attempts to be aware of their own blind spots are often, no, not often, can be obnoxious and condescending at points, despite all of the, the brilliant and decent people who know better who work there, that, that, that it does seem to me that there are institutional issues happening, both at the, in the, the elite press corps level and, and the junior press corps level, with people just coming in and like trying to, you know, earn their stripes and figure this out. And, and Katie, maybe you want the last word here as somebody, you, me, and Eric Adams are all native New Yorkers. This is not actually a city mostly for native New Yorkers. It's a port city. I'm a native a New Yorker city. too, you know. I just didn't go to high school here. Yeah, the, yeah I was going to say. The follow-up <laughs> question. I, I didn't count Chrissy there, who's an all-time New Yorker, who's on my top 10 list, only because she came and went in her formative years, which is kidding. Well, anybody who knows me knows that I like to, you know, dip out every now and again and then come back to the party. <laughs> I don't like to be at the party the whole time. 
Katie, you've been at this party for ages. Um, taking a, a little step back and, and just considering your work covering this administration and previous ones and covering New York and coming in with, 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 with some knowledge now, some of which you've accumulated like over the course of, of your career, as hopefully we all have, like, like you learn a little something here and there. Like, where are we at? It's hard, right? And I think, okay, uh, I look at the reality of journalism just as a whole, right? Like, it's hard to feel like an elitist when I could lose my job tomorrow. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> the city dead out of my seat slash donate. So, and I think we're all just trying to cover the city as we can. And everyone has different opinions of the people that we speak to, I mean, about how it's running. Is it a shit show? Is it is it a hellscape? Is it actually a wonderful place? I mean, look, if the mayor is just so mad about the white reporters, I don't think he likes some of the black reporters either. I think he just is very right. thin-skinned when it comes to criticism. And, and maybe in some ways he, he takes any negative story from a reporter of color worse because he's thinking why, you know, I don't know, there's there'd be some solidarity there. But look, I try to just say, look, I'm trying to just report on the administration as fairly as I can um, while realizing, I don't know, when it comes to the electorate and what people pick up, you know, do they really care about these nitty gritty administrative scandal stories? Who knows? They look outside their window and they see how the city is and they, they, maybe like the mayor, they don't for various reasons that don't make much sense. And then that's who they go vote for. So that's my Timothy take. Pearson, who's like this special advisor to the mayor on criminal justice issues, was drawing, drawing two salaries. And by lots of accounts is one of the people actually running the NYPD, even when uh, Adams brought in the first black female commissioner, Kitchen Sewell, who left between our last episode, by the way, and this one. And I was talking to a few police officials who were stunned that that came and went and it wasn't even a blip of a story um uh, uh phil banks of course who's one of the people who's rolled with adams over decades who's uh you know his brother is the education chancellor his brother's partner is is a very powerful deputy mayor you know he, he leaves the nypd under very complicated circumstances as there's an F nypd investigation going back to de blasio involving the same dudes who bribed de blasio and went to prison for it um, Jeff Madry is now the top uniform cop, who's another guy, Brooklyn guy, a lot of Brooklyn guys here who has a long history with Adams. You know, he becomes the top uniform cop, right? He had a whole thing where he was having an affair, not allegedly, with a subordinate. And during or after the end of that affair, uh, they're arguing in a park. Um, uh, um, she takes his gun. He roughs her up to take the gun back. Uh, someone calls 911 because there's people arguing in a park in a car and it looks bad. Cops come to the scene. He tells the cops to go away. He's a very powerful person already in the department. They just bounce. Um, as this comes out in bits and pieces and the NYPD investigates it, he covers up what happens purposefully and actively and then gets hit for this later, uh, you know, to try and protect his own reputation. Like, should this be a scandal? I think these things are, are interesting and consequential. I hit the Blasio forum. I'm not going to give the uh, first black mayor um, and his advisors of whatever color a pass for them. But I will say that practically, I think it's pretty definitional that voters just don't care um, about all these little things. They didn't care with the Blasio. Um, they certainly don't care with Adams. And by the way, the uh, why are you going after me for the same stuff that, that the white mayor did, did is not a joke. It is not like a unacceptable or unserious defense. Like where those thumbs on the scales are is always the uh, 
is always the question. And, and, and for all of us, just balancing this out, I think, is actually complicated. But as time proceeds and these things accumulate, we're going to find out. And it's not our job to tell voters or anyone else what to think or even to show up. Right. Um, they're going to figure that out for themselves. Like, like for me and Katie, Chris is in a different, fairly awesome place. Like you put the information out there. You can say, you know, I, I can as a columnist, you know, I, I think these three pieces of information online are important. And then after that, people do whatever they want. And it, it, it's humbling and sometimes frustrating to understand, like, how little power any of us have at that point. And, of course, it's frustrating and humbling for mayors. Well, you know, you get all the way up there, you have all this power, and you also really are at the mercy of events and obnoxious people and the storylines they're putting out. And it does make you, uh, you know frustrated and, and irritable sometimes just I, I think by definition we feel you mr mayor 110th mayor come on talk with us about this anytime we will listen with the farrier we even do with bill de blasio sure. but i think you know what you say about voters not really caring about some of the stuff is real i mean you know i get a lot of questions about 2025 i'm like i don't know it really depends on how people feel about their economic circumstances, their housing and food security, you know, even things that the mayor is not in charge of transportation, um, you know, whether or not they feel they're, that he's handled the the influx of migrants well. But like right now, I, I think a lot of people are just trying to make it through summer without some sort of, you know, catastrophic events and staying cool and not getting shot. And until we sort of have a primary challenger, if we do have one, um, that'll be interesting to see if, you know, who, if anyone challenges him. Um, I have a feeling he'll have lots of challengers because folks just want who they want. And he wasn't who, who a lot of leaders in New York wanted. Mm -hmm. And they're accustomed to getting their way. With the... It's always good when Christina has the uh, last word and something seriously for uh, listeners to uh, take in and think about. Anyways, I can't speak for anyone else. It's always good for me. I, and I, I can talk a little too much, but I, I do listen. And uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Katie. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We're an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts for this episode were me, Christina Greer, Harry Siegel, and Katie Honan. Harry Siegel's also our executive producer. And our engineer, Adam Kamara, mixed this episode. As ever, thank you for listening. Join us next week. Thanks for making it this far. Be cool, be kind, be well, and we'll see you next week with more. 